Are, are we going to be able to hear the end of that? <laughs> yes or no? No? Okay. All right. I don't know how I can do this. I'm just, oh well. Maybe. maybe. We'll, we'll, I'll, we'll figure that out. Anyway. Wow. That was, that was wonderful, wasn't it? So, uh, but that's probably a good thing because the story's not over yet. Right? Isn't that right? It's not over yet. It's not over yet. That's what, we're, that's what we're learning in Philippians, isn't it? That salvation is not just what happened in the past. It's what happens in the present. It's what happens in the future. All right? God has saved me. God is saving me. And he will save me. So, that's a good sermon. Well, glad you're here uh, at Windsor Road, and I uh, know it's Dad's weekend, and so uh, our, to all of our guests, we're just so thrilled that you're here. And uh, my name is Randy, and I'm privileged to uh, be the lead minister here at the church. We're in a series of messages over uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and this morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, and you'll find that in your church Bibles on page 982 page 982, and uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please feel free to take that uh, copy of the Bible and uh, put your name in it, take it home as a gift from Windsor Road. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, follow along with me as I read. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. Well, they were once close friends. More than friends. And and more than just colleagues. They served Christ together. And the church benefited from their leadership. And the church grew because of their leadership and their passion for Jesus. And their teamwork was a model for all to see. And then something happened. I wonder what that was. Something happened. A tense conversation a difference of opinion, an unmet expectation, 
followed by a curt reply, a cold shoulder, and then distance and silence and division and conflict. That's what's going on here in Philippians chapter two, uh, 4, verses 2 through 9. We've got two Christians who aren't getting along. Two Christians in conflict. And, and, and what I want to do this morning is uh, to just kind of look at their story. The, you know, Philippians just didn't appear out of thin air. It's a real letter written by a real person to a real congregation 2,000 years ago. There's a context. There's a story. I want to find out what that story is, and I want to see how that applies to us. And believe me, this applies to us, especially when we're considering conflict, interpersonal conflict, and and what it takes to, to have joy in the midst of unity. Listen. Chances are, in a church our size, at least two of us right now are not getting along. I mean, I, I can just tell you that. So this is pretty relevant, isn't it? And what's also relevant is how these verses challenge us regarding our perspective of what church is and what it should be. It, it, it challenges our view of church. And listen, I guarantee you, if you're visiting here at Windsor Road or you feel like a newcomer here to the church family, I guarantee you that if you get invested in this church family, if you partner with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and if you serve together, and if you do that long enough, I guarantee you, you will have conflict. You will. And at that point, you can... You can think to yourself, well, I think I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to quietly leave. And, and I understand that. Believe me. I, and all of us have, have felt that. I have felt that way. All right? And a, a leadership axiom for pastors is this. Never resign on Monday. <laughs> okay? <laughs> really? But, but at that moment, there's a decision that needs to be made. And the decision is this. Am I going to love the church family? Am I going to love my brothers and sisters in Christ as they are? Or am I going to love my vision more? My idea more of what I think the church ought to be like. You see, that's what's going on here. So let's take a look at the story behind these verses and then see how it applies in our lives today. Well, here's the story. The Apostle Paul is under house arrest in the city of Rome for preaching the gospel. We, we can read about that more in Acts chapter 28. He's chained to a Roman guard. Every six hours, a new Roman guard uh, changes shift. And so Paul is just, he's preaching to a congregation of one every six hours. And the gospel is infiltrating the Praetorian Guard there in the capital city of Rome. He's in a rented house, but he's got to supply his own expenses. And that means he needs a support group. Because if he didn't have a support group back then, and you were in prison, you were in deep trouble. Well, enter Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a Christian leader from Philippi. 
And Epaphroditus has brought with him a very generous financial gift from Paul's brothers and sisters in Christ there in Philippi. The church wants to make sure that the apostle has everything that he needs And so, of course, when Epaphroditus arrives, he fills Paul in on what's going on in Philippi. Because the church was about 10 years old by that time. So Paul is probably asking questions like, well, now how's Lydia doing? Lydia was like the charter member at Philippi. She was the very first person uh, who came to Christ when Paul uh, brought the gospel to Philippi. And the church then began to hold services in her home. And so Paul said, well, how's she doing? And what about the elders and deacons? Because the church has grown and mature enough that now there's a, there's a leadership that's forming. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, Epaphroditus tells about, um, you know, Paul, Paul's concern, uh, the church's concern for, for Paul. And then, uh, and, then, and then Epaphroditus tells Paul about the threat of those Judaizers, those who want to add to the gospel by saying that Jesus isn't enough for salvation. You know, the Christianity and crowd. So he's updating Paul on what's going on and Paul's listening and, and, and asking questions. And then he asks this question. He says, oh, by the way, how are Euodia and Syntyche doing? Silence. What? Well, I don't know. It's not, you know. What? What? Come on. What? What is it? You're here. <laughs> and thus begins the story of this conflict between these two sisters in Christ, Euodia and Syntyche. Now, what do we know about these ladies? Well, well, we know what their names mean. Euodia means success, and Syntyche means lucky. They're pagan names, uh, both of which indicate their parents' desires for them to make good in the world. But not a whole lot of good's going on in these verses because they're not getting along. And their conflict has escalated to the point that the entire life of the congregation has been affected. That's what we know about them. We know, we know their names. We know what their names mean. And we also know that both of them are Christians. That's what's behind the phrase in verse 3, whose names are written in the book of life. So Christ has dramatically transformed the lives of these ladies. Furthermore, we know that they've been Christians for a while, at least since the church started. That's what's behind the phrase, Paul says, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So, so these ladies have labored with Paul in the in the gospel ministry, which means that they must have been at that place of prayer along with Lydia when Paul first brought the gospel to Philippi, which also means that they have had to endure hardship and persecution that was so very common in the early days of that church's life. So here these ladies. I mean, they've, they've been rocks at this church they came to Christ probably together, and they probably knew one another uh, well before then. And, and uh, they're assuming some sort of leadership responsibility here. And then something went wrong. Perhaps it was a doctrinal issue. Well, I don't know about that. Perhaps a moral issue. No, I don't know about that either. I, I'm, I'm suspicious of those because Paul would have just called them out on it right there and then, you know. 
Most likely it was a ministry matter. Most likely it was a doing the gospel together matter. A matter that escalated from how to do ministry to, well, now it's getting personal. Now it's getting personal. And it's gone unchecked for quite some time now, and it's beginning to affect the church. I mean, think about it for a minute. Think about how long this has been going on. I mean, their quarrel obviously started before Epaphroditus left Philippi to get to Rome, which was an 800-mile journey, on foot. And then Epaphroditus is there with Paul, and, and then he's got to go all the way back to uh, Philippi. And my goodness, this thing is, it's not going to get resolved in an email. That's what I'm saying. And it's beginning to fester. Factions are forming. Sides are being taken. And the entire mission of the church has become one of passionately pursuing partisanship rather than passionately pursuing Christ. And so as Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, as this letter unfolds, he's thinking about these ladies from the very beginning of chapter 1. So he front loads this theme of unity with an eye on these ladies. That's why in uh, Philippians 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, you are all partakers with me of grace. That's why Paul says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Five times in those first few verses in chapter 1, Paul uses the word all. Why does he do that? Because he wants to emphasize unity. That's why. And that's why Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the what? Same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's emphasizing unity. And that's why in Philippians 3, verse 14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let the mature think this way. You see what's going on here? Paul is front-loading themes of of unity and maturity and humility and Christ-likeness. And having done that, he then addresses each of these ladies by name. He says, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche. He doesn't side with either of them. He simply asks that they agree in the Lord. He speaks not with the leverage of an apostle, but with the love of a brother. As if he looks at each of them in the eyes when he speaks with him. I entreat you, Euodia, and I entreat you, Syntyche. Agree with one another in the Lord. Now, to us, 21st century, right to privacy Americans, we might be taken aback by Paul's public naming, huh? But what I learned in my research is that it would have been more severe had he not named them. You see, in some cases, to leave an adversary unnamed was a sign of of displeasure and disapproval. I'm not even going to give you the dignity of naming you, you see. On the other hand, to name someone in a public correspondence like this 
is to give them honor and dignity and to notify the others that these are your friends and your beloved in Christ. And that's what Paul is doing here. And then Paul humbly asks that the others be a part, that they play a role in their peacemaking. That's what's in verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. True companion. Now, who's that? Who's that? I don't know. Don't have any idea. Well, yes, there are some ideas. There's always ideas. Some say it's a guy by the name of Sisygus. You can see that in your footnote. What does Sisygus mean? Companion. See? Some say it's Epaphroditus himself and you know, named in such a way as uh, to deputize him to help resolve this conflict. Some have even suggested that it's Luke. You know, the Luke of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And still others maybe think that it could be the church community as a whole. Paul is using this word true companion to, to address the entire church including the elders and deacons, which might explain why they are specifically addressed in the greeting, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the only one of Paul's letters where the elders and deacons are specifically addressed. Now, why is that? Well, maybe Paul is commissioning them to help these believers make peace, you know, and could just hear some of those elders or deacons. Well, I, I didn't sign up for this. Well, this is part of it. This is part of it. Well, whoever it is, Paul wants them to help break the deadlock. And he places the responsibility of peacemaking not only on these two women, but on the church itself. Settle this, Paul says. And the sooner, the better. And we all know why, don't we? Unresolved conflict drains energy. I mean, it is startling how much strength uh, I can waste stewing over someone with whom I'm frustrated and angry, right? You done that? How much time have we spent thinking over old resentments that long ago should have been forgiven? You find yourself ever doing that? You find yourself ever daydreaming about an unresolved conflict? It's time to end this. Settle it. The sooner the better. Well, the story ends there. The trail goes cold. I don't know what happened. I don't know if they resolved this. I don't know if uh, uh, Sisygus or uh, the, the yoke fellow or... I don't know if it got resolved. But I do know this. I know there's a take-home truth for us in terms of how we view conflict and what, and what it looks like to find joy in unity. And here's the, here's the truth. Here's the point. Here's the big idea. It's simply this. Conflict is one of God's many graces to make us more like Jesus. Let me say that again. Conflict is one of God's many graces to make us more like Jesus. When I read these verses, I'm challenged to think in my mind, okay, what's the origin of this conflict? How do you, how do you think about 
the origin of conflict. Do you, do you think of conflict in your life with someone? Do you think that coming about just by chance, right? I mean, her name was Lucky, but she really wasn't. Do you think of it that way? Do you think of conflict as something that is inflicted upon your life because of someone else, and it's their fault, you see, whereby you kind of take the victim's approach? Is that how you see see conflict, huh? Or do you see conflict as a grace from God, a gift from God, orchestrated by his sovereign care over your life to make you more and more like Jesus? Well, let's go with that. Let's go with that. Let's just see where that takes us, okay? If you, let, if, you, if you will get on that ride, and it will be a ride, if you will get on that ride, you will see opportunities open that will help you become more and more like Christ. And I want to talk about those opportunities. And, and then first of all, I, I should define the word conflict. And I'm going to use the definition uh, that... Um, is found in an excellent book by Ken Sandy called The Peacemaker. Our elders are studying through this book, and if uh, I could recommend one book about peacemaking through conflict between uh, believers, I would recommend Ken Sandy's The Peacemaker. It would be my go-to book. And here's how he defines conflict. A conflict is a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Okay, A difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. That's a good definition. And I want you to see opportunities that are opened up when we see conflict as one of God's many graces to make us more like Jesus. And the first opportunity is this. In every conflict, there is an opportunity to shatter our misconceptions about what we think church should be like. I'm thinking of what goes on Friday nights at Celebrate Recovery. Our large group portion always closes with the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And, And then there's a section in that prayer that says this. It says, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is. And what's the next line? Not as I would have it. Not as I would have it. You know what? The same could be said about the church. Taking this sinful church as it is. Not as I would have it. Are you willing to do that? So, so you see, the issue is this. Is church an activity that we attend for 70 minutes a week? Or is it a body of people to whom we belong? Are are we involved enough in our relationships in the church family where we actually need to exercise patience with one another? Are we? Are we involved enough with one another where at times we get annoyed with one another? Are we involved enough where, you know, if we hurt one another, we need to ask forgiveness of one another? 
Are we? Are we involved enough where, where, you know, occasionally we find we've got to bear with one another? Are we? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in World War II in Nazi Germany, gave his life for the gospel. This is what he wrote. He wrote an excellent book called Life Together. And it's, um, I think, one of the best books on community that I've ever read. This is what he wrote. The serious Christian is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be. Notice he said the serious Christian, not the novice Christian, but the serious Christian, the mature Christian, of what Christian life together should be and try to make that happen. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. The sooner we get rid of our illusions and our dreams of what we think the church should be like, the better. The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and a community, the better for both. Then he says this. This is powerful. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. So conflict is a grace from God because in conflict, God just strips away the varnish and lets us see the community the way he sees it so that we can love the community the way God loves it. See, that's an opportunity. And there's another In every conflict, in every conflict, there's something more important at stake than my little kingdom, my little shrink-wrapped kingdom of one. Oh, we talk about, yeah, Christians need to resolve conflict, but then you're the one in the conflict, and your inner lawyer rises to your defense, starts to argue your case and justify you and vindicate you and defeat and crush your opponent. Paul, he's trying to tell these ladies there's something more important at stake than who's right or who's wrong. You notice how he sandwiches his words to these women with encouraging and affirming phrases about their common identity and their common destiny? You hear what he's saying? Ladies, You are both citizens of heaven. You are heirs. You are beloved. You're my joy and crown. You're both in Christ. You both will have transformed bodies. You both will one day rule angels. You both have your sins forgiven by the blood of Christ. You both belong to a kingdom of priests. You both will one day serve and worship the living God forever in the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies incorruptible, all brought to you by Jesus Christ. who emptied himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, what was it you were conflicting about? You see? See what he's doing? That's intentional. Sisters, remember who you are. Remember where you're going. And let your minds be filled with that. 
And if your minds are filled with that, then, then how can there be any divisiveness in the presence of those ideas? You say, Randy, are you saying that Paul is, is trying to minimize their conflict? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. I, I, I know what some of you may be thinking, well, that... that That may work in this church, pastor, but it doesn't work out in the real world. I'm trying to tell you what the real world is. And the real world is the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies. That's the real world. And what I'm trying to tell you is that we are a colony of that real world. And so, no, we're not going to handle conflict the way the world does out there. We're going to have to handle it here. And because one day you in Christ will receive immortal bodies, now begin acting in your spirit and in your heart the way you're going to act when your salvation is brought unto completion. When the video gets completed, you see, that's what we're talking. That's what Paul, you know what? We, we left out one song. We did. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what Paul is saying. You keep focused on Jesus. Because when the sun comes up, you can no longer see the stars because the sun is that brilliant. Now, you have an opportunity in every conflict for that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Amen. Well, there's another opportunity then. That's why Paul then leads us to this third opportunity, which is about prayer. Prayer. Verses 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So stop being anxious and worrisome about your conflict and said, pray. Pray about the anxiety that you feel in this conflict. Pray about the difficult conversation you need to have. Pray about the estrangement that you feel with your brother or sister in Christ. Pray that you are full of grace. Pray that you are full of truth. Pray, and pray that you please the most important person there is to please in any conflict. And it's not yourself, and it's not the other person. It's the Lord. Whenever there's a conflict, there's something larger at stake than whose fault it is or whether I'm right or wrong. The biggest issue is this. Will my handling of this situation embarrass the king? And if I, if I don't glorify God, then I'm going to probably glorify someone else, namely me. And in conflict, I have the opportunity to show that I have a big God or a big ego. So the question is this, how can I best represent Christ in this situation? And so Paul says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus. This leads me to the question, how can I bring peace into this conflict? How can I do that? I'm I'm thinking of the words of that great theologian, Buzz Lightyear. (laughs) You remember how he introduces himself? I am Buzz Lightyear. I come in peace. Do you bring peace with you into a room? When you walk into a room, what also enters? Is it peace or is it chaos? Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. What follows you? What what remains in the room after you leave the room? Is it bitterness? Is it resentment? Or is it goodness or is it mercy? You bring peace with you and what will be left is goodness and mercy. What is that? What is that? Well, fourthly, there's an opportunity in every conflict to think high thoughts. That's what verse 8 is about, right? Paul gives this list of virtues. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This list, by the way, was very familiar to the ancient world. Um, Listen, (laughs) you don't have to be a Christian to know what is true, honorable, just, pure, and lovely, etc. You don't. You just need to be human. It's in our DNA. It's in our wiring. And so when it comes to my relationships, when it comes to this person with whom I'm, I'm kind of at odds with, the word is, The word is I need to think high thoughts about that person. Think high thoughts about my brother and sister in Christ. Which is to say, believe the best there is to believe about him or her. You know, give your brother or sister in Christ the benefit of a doubt and treat them with the grace that Christ has treated you. High thoughts, Paul says. So there you have it, four opportunities. And do you notice what Paul is doing here? Paul's giving us principles, not tactics. If you want tactics, go to a self-help section of a bookstore. You'll get tactics there, but you won't get principles. You won't get principles to fill your heart. You're citizens of of a heavenly kingdom. You're a kingdom of priests. Christ has flooded you with his grace. You're going to be living in immortal bodies in the new heavens. Those are high thoughts. You let those thoughts take hold of your heart and you feed your heart those thoughts day in and day out. The tactics will come. No, really, they will. On the other hand, if you just kind of, you know, mechanically master tactics, but there's no heart, There's not going to be much conflict resolution. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You flood your heart with the grace of God that he gives. What we're learning here is that, you know, as far as God is concerned, what's going on right here, right now in this room? We are not a crowd of disconnected Christians who just come and listen to music and a God talk and then we disperse till next week. That's not what this is about. 
God says we're a family. We're a spirit-filled community of siblings related to one another by the blood of Christ. And that reality, more than anything else, needs to set the tone for the conflicts that come our way. Francis Schaeffer um, was just such an influential thinker and teacher. And he wrote a book called The Church at the End of the 20th Century. This is what he had to say about unity and the importance of oneness. We cannot expect the world to believe that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Unless true Christians show observable love to each other, the world cannot be expected to listen. The the world must have the proper answers to their honest questions, but at the same time, there must be a oneness in love between true Christians. So, So there needs to be an attractive unity an attractive unity, a a see-how-they-love-one-another kind of unity followed by who is your God. Schaefer says, this is what is needed if the world is to know that Jesus was sent by the Father and that Christianity is true. Amen.